You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's something I want to get off my chest about pride. I know, I know, pride. But it's June 30th, so technically we're still in Pride Month for at least 18 hours after this show goes live, and I feel justified. My sincerest apologies to anyone who waited a day to listen to this week's podcast. It's July, where you live, and you really shouldn't have to listen to anything else about Pride until, gosh, Non-Binary Awareness Week kicks off on July 12th. But anyway, I was reading the daily paper where I live, the Seattle Times, and they were writing up our latest local pride controversy because it wouldn't be pride in Seattle without a pride controversy. And it's not the controversy that interests me so much. And it's not that I really want to talk about. It's how the Seattle times defined LGBTQ plus after mentioning LGBTQ plus organizations in the first line of her story in the Seattle times staff reporter, Elise Takahama pauses to define the term for her readers, myself included. LGBTQ plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer slash questioning. Okay, so far so good. But Takahama goes on. LGBTQ plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer questioning with the plus sign denoting everything along the gender and sexuality spectrum. Everything? Really? Everything? Look, I don't want to be pedantic, but heterosexuality exists along the sexuality spectrum. Some would describe it as point A on the sexuality spectrum. Cisgender exists along the gender spectrum. So if this is the current operative definition of LGBTQ+, if this catches on, with all those straight people who identify with the genders they were assigned at birth being shipped under it, well, I guess at the very least, the anime avatar brigades on Twitter are going to have to retire cishet as an insult. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, way, way back when Pete Buttigieg was first running for president, that I read I don't know how many think pieces arguing gay cis men aren't queer. So imagine my shock to pick up the Seattle Times and learn that straight cis men are. Cisgender heterosexuals, they're here. I guess they're queer. They're 90% of the population. You know, a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of jokes have been made, and I've made a few myself about the ever-expanding acronym. When the plus sign was added, it wasn't meant to cover everybody. It was added to the end of the acronym for the same reason, and the rest was added to the end of the theme song for Gilligan's Island. The plus sign stood for intersex and asexuals the same way, and the rest stood for the professor and Marianne. It meant everybody else on the island, not everybody else on the planet. Gilligan's Island, a television show that premiered a month before I was born. These are the quality 50-year-old pop culture references that have endeared me to the Zoomers. If I may use a slightly dirty word, there was always something kind of sort of binary about pride. It was about us, not them. The gays versus the straights, the queers versus the breeders, the drag queens and butch lesbians versus dress codes, and trans versus cis. They, straight people, the dreaded cishets, threw everything they could at us. Homophobia, sodomy laws, biphobia, violence, religious bigotry, family rejection, lobotomies, dishonorable discharges, transphobia, workplace discrimination, criminal and cruel indifference during the AIDS crisis. And we found the strength 
inside ourselves, in our own communities, to push back, to fight back, to be ourselves, to love each other, to demand the love and respect from our families of origin that we deserve, to create families of our own, and to fight for an end to discrimination under the law. And that's what pride was about. That's what we are proud of. I know straight people face their own troubles. I mean, I spend 90% of my time helping straight people with their troubles. But straight people don't face systemic oppression for being straight. Straight people might oppress each other. They might face oppression for other aspects of their identities, being a woman, being a person of color, being poor. But they're not systemically oppressed for being straight by queer people. So while assigned female at birth femme presenting allosexual heteroromantic phallophiles, which is just a really, really long-ass complicated way to say straight girls, while they're welcome at pride, do they need a flag of their own? Are they covered by that plus sign? The queer community is shaped by a shared experience, a singular experience, the experience of having to come out because the default assumption that everyone is straight, the default assumption that everyone is cis, those default assumptions don't apply for us. One of the greatest accomplishments of the gay rights movement, of the LGBTQ plus movement, is that coming out today isn't as traumatic as it once was. Individual results may vary and vary wildly, but coming out today isn't as traumatic today as it almost invariably was when Gilligan's Island premiered in September of 1964. And that's because we fought back, that's because we made demands, and that's because straight people, many, not all, got better about us. Straight people got used to us. But they're not us, and we're not them. Let's not smash this particular binary because it means something. To understand who you are, it helps to know, to know, not to hate, it helps to know who you are not. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, the great Leah Delaria, actress and singer, joins me to talk about the Lesbian Bar Project. That's on the magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, more questions, no ads if you subscribe to the magnum. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm calling with a success story. So I've been with my partner for about four and a half years, and we have some exploratory sex, but not quite to the level that I would want. (laughs) I have some kinky desires and um, never really quite sure how into it he really is. So his sex life has been a little dry and bland, especially with my antidepressants. But the other night, we had a breakthrough. So he, we're, you know, kind of like, same old, you know, do you want to have sex? Ugh, I don't know. Are you in the mood? I don't know. And then he goes, okay, well, let me, let me pee first either way. And I was like, why don't you just pee in my mouth? <laughs> and he was like, I'm definitely down to try, but it's pretty hard once I, you know, get turned on. Like you can't, you can't suck my dick at all while I'm doing it. I'm like, Okay, let's try. So we go in the bathroom and he's trying and trying and I'm like, okay, well, why don't you just piss on my boobs a little first and then work your way to the mouth? So he did. It just got so hot. He was like, this is so fucking hot. I just want to piss in your mouth. And I was like, yes, perfect. <laughs> and so he did and tastes clearly like anything, you know, and 
it was great. I was really wet <laughs> in all meanings of the word. And finally, we ended up fucking. And while we were fucking, I kissed him and he was kissing me back super hard. And I was just thinking about how he was like totally down for all the fluids and just it was so hot and bonding and very subby. And so I was just doing all that, you know, pinching his nipples and all of it. And he's like, you want me to call you mistress? And I was like, oh, my God, this is I'm so excited. So, yeah, it turned pretty dommy. He let me dom him. And it was just so cool that he was down to try that. And uh, afterwards, it opened up a bunch of conversations about, like, what he's down for and it sounds like he's actually down for a lot more stuff than I thought especially around me kind of doming him you know he just wants to know that I'm into it whatever I think is hot he's pretty down for so I am fucking stoked and there's many more interesting things to come thank you so much for calling and sharing your inspiring sex success story and I'm really glad that you mentioned that his pee after he was able to pee in your mouth, didn't really taste like much, really didn't taste like anything. So many people out there think all pee is bright orange, dark, stinky morning pee or half an hour after you've had some asparagus pee. But really, if you've been drinking water, you will hydrate or you had a pitcher of beer, pee is just so much hot water. And it can be, as you discovered, as you and your boyfriend discovered, a hot sex toy and it can open up whole conversations about what else you might want to try. A very inspiring sex success story, I have to say, particularly for people in long-term relationships. Anyway, listeners, if you'd like to share your sex success story, we love opening each week's Lovecast with a listener sex success story before we get to listener sex problems. Give us a call, share your success story. We might open next week's Lovecast with yours. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a married cis woman with two young children living in the Midwest. I have never had a great relationship with my mother-in-law, and what recently happened may be the nail in the coffin. To give some background, my husband was raised Catholic in a rural conservative town. I am Jewish, from the Chicago area, quite liberal, and was married once before him. So basically, nothing my in-laws expected or wanted for my husband— my sister-in-law hasn't held back and has said some horribly nasty things about me in the past to the point that we have cut her out of our lives. My mother-in-law doesn't like that at all and, of course, blames me for fracturing her family, but that's a story for another day. In honor of Pride Month, I recently shared on social media that I'm bi. There was a wonderful outpouring of support from many of my friends and family, but my husband received several text messages from her about my post. She asked if there was anything else that was going to be announced on social media that they should know about and if he had a problem with my post. He handled it beautifully and said he didn't and that he thinks it's great that I'm honest with myself and comfortable enough to say something about it. He also said he was sorry if it made her uncomfortable, but that he loves me and I'm still his wife. This doesn't change any of that or the fact that I'm mother to her grandchildren. The next comment was, what kind of pushes it over the edge. Her response was that she hopes our children don't pay the price for their mother's comfort. He stopped replying at that point because he had said his piece and didn't want to get into it. I want my kids to be able to have a relationship with that side of the family. 
but I also want to protect and stand up for my little family. I can understand some of her concern, but I don't really buy it. My in-laws rarely call us or visit, but ask us all the time when we're coming. And with two young children, that's no easy feat. Uh, I really think this is about me and also her fear that she'll be judged by her family and friends. I would like to reach out and say something like, hey, I understand you have some concerns about my post and I'd love to talk about it and address your questions, but I also don't know if I'm going to open a can of worms by doing that. I'm really not sure how to handle this. Congrats on coming out. I'm so happy that you have encountered so much support in coming out. You have support of your husband and friends and most of your family, not your husband's family, not the family you married into, but it sounds like you have the love and support of most of your family. And that's great. What's also great, it's always great to see bisexual people fighting, pushing back against the most insidious form of bi erasure, which is bisexual people entering into opposite or occasionally same-sex relationships and kind of disappearing into perceived or presumed heterosexuality or perceived or presumed homosexuality. There are millions of bisexual people out there in opposite sex for the most part, sometimes same-sex relationships who aren't out. And it is a huge drag on the acceptance of bisexuality, the reality of bisexuality is a huge impediment to bisexual equality. So good for you coming out as you have. All right. The mother-in-law, your husband's family, you don't owe her an explanation. You don't owe her a phone call. I get that there's a long history here of assholery uh, from your husband's family, from his sister, from his mother, from others most likely. And I think you're within your rights to engage with them as little as possible. And if you don't think a phone call with his mother about you coming out as bi is going to help anything, if you think she's just on the hunt for more things to object to your existence about, you don't have to get on the fucking phone. You have the love and support of your husband. And it sounds like he's doing what he needs to do with his family of origin, which is to stand up to them and run interference and as much as he possibly can be a filter for you to protect you, to protect his wife, to protect his kids from what's toxic and unloving about his family of origin. I do got to say, though, that the issue that your mother-in-law raised, you know, we as gay parents, Terry and I as gay parents, we thought about that. We worried that our kid would encounter homophobia, would be picked on or bullied because of who his parents were. And that was something that we, and I think all gay parents, take into consideration when choosing where to live, if you have the freedom to move uh, or relocate, when choosing what schools to send your kid to. We, as your husband has run interference for you with his family of origin, we ran interference uh, ourselves as gay parents, you know, before we sent him off to a summer camp when he was seven or eight years old, we did our due diligence about that summer camp. We looked into it. We had conversations to make sure that he wouldn't pay a price or if he did encounter bigotry, that he would be protected. That just as your husband has taken your side, the institution that we were trusting with our kid would take our kid's side in the face of homophobia. 
So the concern your mother-in-law raised, although her motives in raising it might be suspect, she may have raised it just to throw it at you with every other kitchen sink she's yanked out of walls and thrown at you over the years. It might have come from a bad place, but it's a legit concern. And you can take her at her word and address it with her in a phone call and see where that goes. Or, and this is what I would do if I were in your shoes, because I would really doubt my mother-in-law's motives in raising this issue, I would just continue to have as little contact as possible with my mother-in-law if this woman were my mother-in-law and allow your husband to continue to do what your husband has done so well, which is love you, prioritize you, prioritize his kids, prioritize the family that he created with you over the family that he originated from, which means let your husband talk with his mother about this shit. Spare yourself. Hey, Dan, I am a 30 something cis woman uh, that lives in the mid Atlantic. So my dad is a bigot. He is racist. He is frequently sexist. He says some really messed up stuff. And typically it happens when he's drinking, but often enough when he's sober as well. And so in the past, he used to keep all this stuff on the inside. But after we had the giant orange for a president, it's now starting to come out more often. And so the the problem that I've run into is that I have really catered my dating life over the last decade or so. I have purposely avoided dating people of color or any people that I feel will be subjected to uh, any abuse from my dad. I know that's not necessarily the right way to go about things. And to a certain extent, it's avoiding the problem. But I was married to a man who was Asian. He was adopted from Japan as a baby. And so he was raised Asian American. He was raised in the South. And so he had really thick skin. He was subjected probably to a lot of teasing as he grew up. And I know he could handle it. And my dad would say some of the most messed up stuff to him. And I would stop my dad. I would explain all the ways it's messed up. And I, I would try to really get my dad to see that, hey, what you're doing is not right. My ex-husband used to say, you know, it's okay. It's fine. I can handle it. Not a problem. He would even laugh along to dad's quote jokes. But in my eyes, it was not okay. And I really have avoided this situation ever since. It helps that, you know, I, I'm also interested in white men. So really, I've been able to kind of get around it for a long time now. But as time goes on, I am starting to see like, I want to do things that make me happy. And if that means I want to date someone who is not white, then I want to be able to do that. I need to stop making the decision for other people if they can handle the situation. And so herein lies my question. At what point do you roll out the hard stuff? So as I'm starting to get to know people and I'm starting to date people, I don't want to show up on the first date and and be like, hey, man, by the way, dad's totally racist. He's going to say some really fucked up stuff. And I'm going to do my best to be an advocate and to try to interrupt him and to stop it. But is that something that you're OK with? And at the same time, I don't want to hook them on the line, so to speak, and get them to the point where they really, really love me and then drop it later. I think that this is something that they should be able to make an informed decision about. But at what point do I roll it out? I never know when the right time to do this is. Well, we're in agreement about one thing. 
it's not okay in my eyes. This is not okay. What your dad is doing, not okay. I suspect what you may have done to your ex-husband wasn't okay either. You may have relied a little too much on him laughing off your dad's bigotry and racism. You may have relied a little too much on your ex-husband's thick skin to get him through these encounters and not, I suspect, have intervened as aggressively as you coulda, woulda, or shoulda. And now what you've done to yourself over the last decade, allowing your father's bigotry to edit your dating life, really embracing your father's bigotry and making it your own, also not okay. All right, zooming out for a second. I know you can get in trouble when you compare sexual orientation to race. There are different experiences. and But I, I got to say, a lot of queer people have been in the position of being brought home to meet family that is bigoted. A lot of queer people have been the first boyfriend somebody brought home, a guy brought home to meet mom and dad who weren't fully accepting or weren't accepting at all of their child's gayness. And so I don't think it's necessarily terrible to ask someone to do that. I, I have been that boyfriend who's been brought home to meet parents, to meet a whole large extended Catholic family that wasn't so into shaking the hand of the man who was sodomizing their son and brother, who was an adult, but still the little brother in the family, the baby of the family. I was the boyfriend. I was ass-fucking-their-kid, and they did not like it, and I knew it going in. My boyfriend at the time prepared me for that encounter, for that first meeting, and I stared it down. I faced it down. His family eventually came all the way around. They were accepting, but slightly conditional acceptance at that time. They are now fully accepting, in part because they met me, in part because he stood up to them, in part because he insisted that they meet me and I'd be welcome in their home in the same way that his siblings' partners were welcome at home. So I do think that you can meet someone you can date a person of color and you can let them know that your family, that your dad in particular, is a racist asshole. Now with that information, the person you're dating can decide whether they want to date you, whether they want to deal with that bullshit. They can also decide if you're going home and they're invited whether they want to subject themselves to that, whether they want to have your family inflicted on them, your dad inflicted on them like that. I do think that there is a line that has to be drawn. You know, in the previous call, the Jewish woman who married the Irish Catholic guy, whose family is very unaccepting of him having married a, you know, already married a divorced Jewish woman, they don't have much to do with at least one member. They cut the sister-in-law out of their lives because she was, it sounds, like a bigoted asshole to the caller, to the Jewish woman who married the Irish Catholic guy. You have to, if you're going to make a family, if you're going to partner with someone – you have to be willing to make that person your top priority, not your dad's fucking racist fifis, but your partner's feelings and their ability to sense that they are your first priority, that you love them more than anyone else in the world, including your fucking asshole father. And if that means cutting your father out of your life, if that means using the leverage that you have over your father 
for his good behavior, if nothing else, even if he doesn't have a change of heart, using the leverage you have, which is your presence, you're going to have to use that. And your hypothetical future person of color, boyfriend or husband, I think should accept nothing less than seeing that you're willing to use all the leverage you have or the only leverage you have as an adult child over your family of origin, which is your presence. So yeah, your dad needs to do better. Maybe he never will. Maybe he's deplorable and is never going to change, but you can change. Some of what you've done, and I wasn't there, and I don't know how aggressively you pushed back against your dad when your ex-husband was in the room or not in the room, but perhaps it's possible if you look back and scrutinize your own behavior, interrogate your own behavior, you can identify ways in which you failed your ex-husband. You failed to be the advocate and ally that he needed you to be. Identify those ways in which you failed, and you do better yourself by your hypothetical future partner. But right now, today, no longer let your father's racist attitudes edit your Tinder profile or edit your dating choices, or the men that you are willing to date or be with. And if you partner with one, yeah, let him know early on who your family is. Give him the choice about whether or not he's going to have anything to do with your family. And if your family can't be kind and decent and loving to your partner, or if your partner doesn't want to see them to you about your partner, don't see your family. Don't see your father. Cut him out of your life. Use your leverage. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old cis gay man calling from Canada, and I have a question about where to draw the line with having a relationship with my parents or not. I'm an only child, as are both my parents, and as such, I have a very small family. My mother is a strong evangelical Christian, and my father is apathetic towards religion, but a hardcore right-wing conservative. Growing up, I was very close to them, even into my early adult years until I came out of the closet at age 27. When I came out to them, I was already in a relationship with another man for a year, and that man is now my husband today. Things obviously changed in our relationship when I came out, but after the initial, initial turmoil settled, my mother adopted a love the sinner, hate the sin mentality towards me. I wasn't disowned, and we still had contact, but it became very formal, and we avoided any topics we might disagree on, which felt like almost everything. They acknowledged my partner, and were not abusive or outright rude to either of us, even going as far as giving my now-husband small gifts at Christmas. That said, this behavior would be countered by other actions and implications. They refused to let my partner and I stay at their house overnight when in town, lest we sleep in the same room together. They expressed strong disapproval at the idea of my husband and I adopting a child. My mother even told me in no uncertain terms that they would not be coming to my wedding. The result was a very limited, strained, and professional-feeling relationship with my parents for about seven years. This came to a head during the COVID pandemic, surprisingly over something not related to me being gay. During a telephone conversation with my parents one day, my father stated he'd been lying about fake medical conditions to a retail and restaurant staff in order to get around their city's mandatory mask bylaw. He spouted all the standard anti-mask vitriol as a defense to these actions. I'm a healthcare worker, and the COVID pandemic has waged a massive toll on my mental health. I've had multiple patients die in front of me from COVID, so it's a very hot-button issue for me. I got very angry, we had an argument, and I hung up the phone. That was in August 2020, and I haven't spoken to them since. Part of me is relieved. 
Ever since coming out, interacting with my parents was emotionally draining, and I constantly felt disrespected and frustrated over having to maintain a semblance of a loving relationship, while they simultaneously made it clear they didn't agree with who I was or how I was living my life. Things like exchanging Christmas presents felt pointless and more of a habit than actually something either of us wanted to do. As well, my mother, while never physically or verbally abusive, has always been somewhat emotionally manipulative during my life, and that also only got worse since coming out. One time, she began bawling in a restaurant with my husband and I about how I, quote, didn't love her anymore. I desperately had to try and smooth the situation over, at minimum to get her to stop crying and avoid the judging glances from nearby tables. It was incredibly embarrassing, it felt very manipulative, and not having contact has felt freeing from that aspect of our relationship as well. I'm torn though, and I often wonder if I'm making the right decision. As mentioned, I was never physically or verbally abused by my parents. On the surface, growing up, I was given every opportunity that their middle-class income was able to provide me. I was never disowned when I came out, and the decision to end contact was mine, not theirs. I'm also worried about what the future holds. As an only child in a very small family, there's not really anyone else to take over the role of decision-maker or caregiver as they age. I worry about what will happen when they need to move to a nursing home or have major medical decisions made, and I ask myself how I will have the legitimacy to make those calls if I haven't had a relationship relationship with them for a decade or more. So I guess my question is, how much is too much? Where do I draw the line in having a relationship with my parents? And how much do I put up with from them before I call it quits? Do I try to reestablish a relationship with them or live with my decisions from last year and continue to avoid contact into the future? Good for you. You're using the leverage as an adult child that you have over your parents, which is your presence, your presence in their life. You have withdrawn from their life. You have cut off contact with your parents. You feel a little guilty because they never disowned you after you came out. But you know, there's the death from one cut, one deep cut. And then there's the death from a thousand cuts and the constant communicating to you over the last seven, eight years, their disapproval really adds up to the death of a thousand cuts. I think it does add up to a kind of near disowning. They have held you at arm's length. They have held you and your husband with tongs, like you're something dirty or disgusting. Like there is something wrong with you. They have communicated to you clearly again and again and again and again for years that they disapprove, that they don't like this, that their love is conditional and compartmentalized. All right. Well, you put up with that bullshit. You put up with their bullshit for a very long time. God, I hate religion sometimes so much. And the pandemic brought you to a crisis point with your parents. And you say it wasn't related, but I actually do think it's kind of related. Their assholery and the pandemic and the way they've treated you and your mother's manipulativeness. You know, it's standard right-wing conservative assholery to accuse the other side of engaging in the behavior of the corruption that you yourself are engaged in. Remember, I'm not a puppet. You're the puppet. Remember who said that? Putin's puppet said that to Hillary Clinton during a debate in 2016 when she accused him of being the puppet. The right is constantly accusing the other side of committing the crimes. The right is busily committing. They tried to steal the election in 2020, and I'm sure your parents approved of that effort, And now they accuse Joe Biden of having stolen the election. So your mom in the restaurant, you don't love me anymore. Boo hoo hoo. She was kind of accusing you 
of what she's guilty of herself. I'm sure on some level, to some degree, she still loves you, but not like she did. Not anymore. All right. So you have cut off contact with your parents and you are relieved. You feel a little guilty. You wonder what to do. The only way to determine whether using the leverage you have, your presence, is having any effect on your family is to have some ongoing limited contact with your family that doesn't traumatize you, that doesn't undo the feeling of relief that you have right now with not having as much contact with your parents as you used to. So what I would advise you to do is for you to decide what kind of contact you could have with your parents right now that isn't going to throw you back into the grief and agitas that you used to experience and put you in their crosshairs again. You're, you're not showing up to get punched in the face. You're not going home so that your parents can tell you that you and your husband aren't allowed to sleep in the same bed in their house because they disapprove of your relationship and your marriage and you and who you are and who he is and who I am. So don't go home. So I very much appreciate your call because it gives me this opportunity to elaborate on this, use the leverage that you have of your family of origin, and you don't have to show up to get punched in the face. But the only way to, again, determine whether withdrawing from your family, not going home for the holidays, not having as much contact as you used to, or not having contact at all for a period of time, the only way to determine whether that's having any effect, whether that leverage is actually leveraging your parents into a better spot is to have some small degree of contact. Maybe a phone call every once in a great while, maybe an email, maybe a letter. Sometimes I think letters, handwritten letters are best. So thank you for calling. I'm really sorry that your parents have been doing this to you for eight years. And I think you made the right decision cutting them off. And you can make a decision in the future about reestablishing contact. And then after you've reestablished some limited degree of contact, you can make a decision about how much more contact they're worthy of or you're willing to tolerate. And if you can't tolerate it and they aren't worthy of it, yeah, you don't have to see them ever again. Hi, Dan. Mid-20s cis bi woman from the Midwest calling with a question about my love language. My love language is definitely giving and receiving gifts. I take pride in finding the perfect gifts for my loved ones and making them feel special on their special day. My issue is that my birthday is tomorrow and my husband just couldn't wait to give me my gifts when I got off work. He got me a pretty cool hoodie that I've been hinting at for a few weeks and then three or four little filler items from Amazon that I'll probably never use. He also bought a few white t-shirts that are not my size and ironed on photos of our pets to them, which is cute, but it was his first time doing this and it doesn't look great. They'll be pajamas for sure. Uh, nothing else is planned for my birthday. Am I being unreasonable that I feel a little upset about this? I feel that he didn't put much time or consideration into the things that I would actually want and use. Um, for some context, he just had a birthday a few weeks ago, and I got us a night at a cute hotel where we had great sex and ordered in whatever he wanted for dinner. I got him a fun birthday cameo, a box of merch from his favorite band, some autographed memorabilia from his favorite podcast, a limited release t-shirt of his favorite video game, and a few other items of clothing, um, and even a rare vinyl record that he said himself he never thought he would actually own. Uh, it's not about the money that's spent. We share finances and are financially stable. I wasn't extravagant for his birthday. I spent less than $500. 
I'm not asking for expensive bags or trips to Paris, but is it unreasonable to expect something better than Amazon sticker packs and a journal and t-shirts that don't fit for my birthday? If a price of admission for this relationship is just that I have to learn to gift myself for my birthday, that's fine. I'm just a little disappointed. With all due respect to your love language, uh, I think you need to be careful, not just around your expectations. If your husband, if the man you married is not as good at giving gifts as you are, your disappointment and anger isn't going to make him any better at it. You might have to adjust your expectations. But I really think you need to be careful around a Prezi's arms race here. How are you going to outdo yourself on his next birthday or Christmas or Valentine's Day or whatever if on one birthday you got him a trip to a hotel room, all the sex he wanted, all the food he wanted, a birthday cameo, a box of merch from his favorite band, autograph memorabilia from his favorite podcast, a limited release t-shirt from his favorite video game, more clothes, a rare vinyl record that blew his mind, all for under $500, good budgeting. But how do you possibly outdo that when his next birthday rolls around? And how can he, if giving gifts doesn't come naturally to him, if he's not as obviously not as good at it as you are, how does he possibly match that? How does he possibly compete with you? And it shouldn't be a competition, but you've kind of set it up as a competition. There seems to be something transactional here for you. And that's not always, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I think relationships are often transactional or have transactional components and that is fine. But you married someone who's not as good at this gift giving shit as you are. And if you don't want to be endlessly disappointed, you're going to have to adjust your expectations or you're going to have to do what my husband does. My husband is very good at giving gifts. He's actually incredibly thoughtful, has this ability to just blow your mind by finding the perfect thing that you didn't know that you wanted or didn't think it was possible for someone to get you. And he gets it for you. And it is a wonderful and B incredibly, at least early on in our marriage, anxiety-inducing because I am not good at it in the way that he was good at it. And our solution, he makes a fucking list. A list of the things that he might like to get for his birthday or for Christmas, and he gives it to me. And then I go get those things. And that's my fucking love language. I will go get it. I once walked through a snowstorm. I don't have a car. I can't drive. I can't drive to pick up presents. Walked through a snowstorm to a mall in Seattle, but far from our house to get the laptop that he wanted for Christmas for him alone. That was my love. Now, he wasn't surprised by getting that laptop, but my hero's journey in getting that laptop for him was my love language, and he felt loved. So you might have to... Uh, Learn to hear whatever love language your spouse is speaking, whether it's around gifts or there are other ways that he takes care of you and shows that he loves and cherishes you. But to expect someone to be as good at giving gifts as you apparently are, that may be an irrational expectation that you want to tweak. All that said, perhaps I'm biased. Just listening to your call gave me an anxiety attack about how bad at this I am, how bad at giving presents I am. And so, I don't know, if there's a listener out there who managed to turn someone who is bad at giving gifts into someone who is good at giving gifts and you want to share your secret, you can call. I don't think that's possible. 
original caller. I don't think that's possible. I think you're going to have to adjust your expectations and create a workaround. And that is the oft-updated list of things you might like to receive as presents from your husband so he can go get them. That way, when you give him a gift, he's not going to feel anxious and nervous and inadequate. And when you get a gift, even if it's one you had to instruct him to get for you, you will feel seen, you will feel heard, and you will feel loved in your own love language. So I've been going on some Tinder dates with men that identify as ethically non-monogamous and they have partners. I don't have any problem with this. This is works with where I'm at in my dating and whatnot. So I'm like, great. I match with these people and I'm going on dates. Once in a while, there's connecting happening. And something I've noticed, a bit of a pattern has emerged where these men are kind of awful and (laughs) they don't communicate what they're looking for. They ghost. They don't have very good understanding of aftercare. And I'm just wondering, like, is this a thing? Like, do men identify as ethically non-monogamous when they have no idea how to actually do that? It's just super confusing because if I wanted that kind of connection, I would just go for like, you know, the other people that are on Tinder for one night stands and just want to do that. Anyway, so I'm, I'm just feeling very confused by this and I'm wondering if you could like maybe give these ethically non-monogamous newbies or people that have been doing it a while but not doing it that well, maybe you could give them like some ground rules of like how to treat the other lovers in their lives or even just the people they're going on dates with. Poor communication, ghosting, not understanding aftercare. These are complaints I hear about men generally, constantly, and also about women and not necessarily about men or women, people practicing ethical non-monogamy specifically. The people you're meeting on Tinder and elsewhere who identify as ethically non-monogamous, that's a low bar. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily ethical people in all their interactions with all human beings. That doesn't necessarily mean they are more highly evolved or more thoughtful or more considerate or more emotionally available. All ethical non-monogamy means is that they aren't cheating, that they have a partner that they are in an open relationship with. And ethical non-monogamy can be DADT, a don't ask, don't tell arrangement. Ethical non-monogamy can be uh, polyamory, where people have multiple partners, concurrent romantic relationships, and it's all above board and everybody knows and everybody asks and everybody tells. There is a spectrum there. It seems to me that you went into these interactions with guys who identified their themselves as ethically non-monogamous expecting more from them than just that label ENM promises. All ENM means is their partner at home isn't being cheated on when they sleep with you. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are otherwise good guys, great guys, non-ghosting guys, good communicators, or not assholes. If somebody identifies as ENM, ethically non-monogamous, you still have to do, as we like to call it around here, your screw diligence. You still have to suss them out. You can't make an assumption just based on that 
that they're good guys. You still have to go into these relationships with your bullshit detectors on full, which is not to excuse this kind of bad behavior. But I promise you, if you sought out guys who didn't identify as ethically non-monogamous, you are as likely to encounter in that pool men who are kind of awful, men who don't communicate, men who ghost, men who don't understand aftercare. There's a little bit of selection bias at work here. You've been selecting ethically non-monogamous guys. You've noticed this pattern and now you think that's what all ethically non-monogamous guys are like or guys who identify as ethically non-monogamous, some of whom may be lying about being ethically non-monogamous in order to get into the pants of other folks behind their partner's backs. That is a thing that also sometimes happens because some of everybody is awful. I'm sorry you've had a string of bad experiences with guys who use that label, a label that led you, perhaps irrationally, to expect better from these guys. To expect, you know, because ethical is in the title, you expect them to have better ethics, to behave more ethically, to behave with more consideration and thoughtfulness and care than a guy just looking for a one-night stand who doesn't have a partner at home or who might be cheating on the partner that they have at home. You might want to adjust that expectation, which is not to say that we shouldn't expect people to not be awful. We should expect people to not be awful, and we should strive ourselves not to be awful people. I will grant you that it's possible that some guys out there are using the ethically non-monogamous label, are weaponizing it because they realize or they've intuited, intuit, that's the word of the day, that they will get a certain benefit of the doubt, that there are women out there who see ethically non-monogamous on somebody's profile, women who aren't interested in a commitment or a relationship who are looking for basically a one-night stand, who may be warmer to them, more open to hooking up with them because they saw ethically non-monogamous in their profile and made an assumption about this being one of the good guys, about this guy who's using this label being one of the good guys. Entirely possible that this is circulating on the internet and shitty Reddit forums, guys telling other guys, use this and you will attract women who want a one night stand because they'll think you're one of the good guys and it'll be easier to get into their pants. That is, I guess, possible, which is another reason why you want to go into all of these interactions with your bullshit detectors on full blast and not granting anyone the benefit of a doubt that they don't deserve and haven't earned. And again, it'll help to remember that ethically non-monogamous is about how that person treats their committed partner. They're in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. It is no assurance about how they're going to treat you, ethically or otherwise. And remember, ethically non-monogamous, that label, again, is not a promise that someone is making on Tinder to a stranger. It's how they treat their partner at home. It's about the relationship that they're in. Not a promise that they're not going to ghost you. It's not a promise that they're great communicators. Not a promise that they're good at aftercare or anything else. Hi, Ben. Yesterday, I was scrolling through Grommer, which is an app for gay men into fat and gaining. And this guy posted that he really wanted to do a belly saline infusion. And I had never heard of that. So I looked it up and apparently... People like to fill 
especially their scrotum, but also sometimes their breasts and less frequently other body parts like bellies with saline through a catheter that is initially inserted with a needle. And it's so amazing how much these body parts can grow. And then it all sort of gets absorbed by the body over the course of about a day. And I am simultaneously the slightest bit horrified and incredibly intrigued. My boyfriend is not into weight gain or any of that sort of thing, but he is incredibly into my pleasure. And so he's really been very uh, engaging with me and he loves to talk dirty with me and he lets me play with his little belly and he plays with my belly and he brings me cheesecake home from his job. But I just am not sure if I should even bring this up with him. Is it too much to ask of somebody who's pretty vanilla? Like all he's interested in from a kinky side is like maybe a little hair pulling, which is, you know, borderline vanilla. But do you think it's a bad idea to bring it up? Or should I mention that this is something that I'm interested in? Let me quickly answer the question that a lot of listeners are going to have. Grommer is the app the caller referred to. Grommer, G-R-O-M-M-R. It's a social network for gayers, bloaters, admirers, fat bellies, starter guts, chubs, bears, and so much more. All right, caller, scrotal infusion, saline infusion, infusion play, not something I've ever done, not something anyone has ever asked me to do, but something I guess I would consider being GGG and all if someone that I was with and someone I was really into asked me to try it or think about it. So sure, why not share that with your boyfriend? It might be too much to ask, but I feel like you should be able to at least share it. Now, backing up for the freaked out out there, saline infusions, not to be confused with silicone injections, saline basically salt water. Some people get off on infusion play, it's sometimes called. It's where a, a needle and an IV drip is introduced and you can inflate someone's scrotum, someone's labia, someone's breasts with saline. And it swells, the area swells. You can inflate someone's scrotum until it's basically the size of a cantaloupe, larger even. And over 24 hours, roughly, that saline is absorbed by the body and the excess fluids are then through urination eliminated from the body. Do not confuse the safe, relatively safe. If you're playing responsibly, you're using sterilized needles and sterile saline. Don't confuse safe saline infusion play with dangerous silicone injection. Silicone is made of silica. It's basically sand. It's a polymer but it is kind of a solid and silicone can enter the bloodstream. People sometimes will use silicone uh, to permanently enhance or modify the size of their genitals, their hips, their buttocks. And the problem with silicone injections and why it's not recommended and illegal is that silicone can enter the bloodstream and then cause an embolism, a stroke. It can result in death. There was a famous case of somebody who had done silicone injections in Seattle, who died after modifying his body with silicone. Just Google, I know this is going to sound weird, noodles and beef, 
and silicone, and you will find a whole bunch of stories about this very, very sad case. So everybody out there listening, I just want to be really emphatic about this. Do not confuse saline infusion with silicone injection. The former saline infusion, harmless. The latter silicone injection, potentially deadly. Now, when you read articles about saline infusion as a fetish, it's usually about the scrotum, sometimes about breasts, sometimes about labia. However, there are published studies, there are medical recommendations that when a severely dehydrated patient, usually an elderly patient, needs to be hydrated quickly, that you can do a saline infusion subcutaneously under the skin, not into the muscle, the meat, or the organ, subcutaneously in the abdomen. So caller, you could, as you've discovered on Grommer, you could engage in saline infusion play to temporarily swell your belly, or if your GGG partner is super GGG, his belly. And so long as you're using sterilized needles, sterile saline, and being very careful, wearing gloves, alcohol swabs, and you eliminate or minimize the risk of a localized infection, yeah, it's safe. It is for many people because of the involvement of kind of medical errata devices, kind of medical play. And for a lot of people, that can seem very extreme. That doesn't mean that you can't do it, can't do it safely. doesn't mean you can't fantasize about it. doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to share with your partner this information. You stumbled over this on Grommer. You learned about it. You thought it was kind of exciting. It's a temporary way to swell your belly or swell his if he's game uh, without having to gain a bunch of weight that you may not want to permanently carry around. This would be weight that you would only very temporarily carry around. That said, saline infusion can stretch out the skin and you can be left with looser or saggier skin in the area where if you do it again and again and again, you're regularly practicing saline infusions. That's something you're going to want to take into account and think about before you engage in this kind of play, assuming your boyfriend is interested in engaging in this kind of play. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Leah Delaria, actress, singer, comedian, you may know her as Big Boo on Orange is the New Black, but in my heart, she is a star on Broadway, on the town, Chicago, Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of the highest profile dykes in show business. Hey, Leah, how are you doing? <laughs> I think I'm the biggest dyke in show business, Dan. That's what I'm going to say. Biggest you've, dyke. You've always been the biggest dyke in show business. <laughs> I was calling you not to talk show business, though. I was calling to talk with you about uh, this campaign you are involved with, which is to save mm -hmm. the lesbian bars. What was What's going on with the lesbian bars? Why do we need to to, to have a campaign to save them? Well, first of all, there used to be, I mean, I grew up in that scene. There used to be a bunch of lesbian bars uh, and in, the, in, in every city. You had a choice, and especially in the bigger cities. You could go to one or two or three different uh, dyke bars. Uh, we never had the bars like that the guys had. You know, guys, they have they have 10 bars on one street. Um, we always had a little, like, fewer. And, um, and what's happened over the course of time, for socioeconomic reasons, for the way the world has changed in terms of rent, um, for the way we in queer society have changed in how we view ourselves, we find that these safe spaces for lesbians are disappearing. There used to be well over 200. I mean, that's what our research show. Um, in the 80s, well over 200. There's literally 21 dyke bars left in America. You heard that right. I'm not saying there are 21 in New York City. There's 21 dyke bars left in all of the United States. 
And the Lesbian Bar Project is an effort that, that, that you've joined uh, forces with, created by Erica Rose and Alina Street, to save right. lesbian bars that we have. Yes. Yeah, and I'm now kind of the executive producer of what, we're, what we have going on. Um, yeah, I've been talking about the disappearance of dyke bars for a very, very long time. And Alana and uh, Erica reached out to me and said, this is what we're trying to do. Uh, during the pandemic, we were really, really concerned that we were going to lose them all. And uh, I was very concerned about that. I had voiced that. They reached out to me and we joined forces. We did a PSA that we put out last November and we were able to raise $100,000 to keep these dyke, the 21 remaining dike bars open in America. And now we've relaunched it during Gay Pride Month and we're trying to get another 200000 you got to say it's remarkable that we were able to get $100,000 from lesbians. <laughs> because, you know, with all due respect, well, yeah, we don't make the money that men make. So, you know, two men together are going to have a lot more money than two women together. And it's not like we have a lot of spare change laying around, which is one of the reasons why a lot of lesbian bars are disappearing. Which, especially now, people don't have a lot of spare change laying around. Absolutely. But what I think has happened also, because what's happened within our own community, you know, the alphabet soup of queerdom, dyke bars are losing that sort of identity that it's just for lesbians. And we consider ourselves a place for everybody. Everybody's welcome. It's first and foremost, a lesbian bar. But of course, gay men, come in. most dyke bars have gay men on their employee list, you know, mm-hmm. um, of course, gay men come in, trans people come in, everybody, the rainbow alphabet is welcome. And in many instances, as straight people as well, as long as you behave what the way one should behave in a gay bar. You know, if you have a heart and you're, you're breathing and you have only goodness in it, you're welcome in these dyke bars. And that's kind of a, a change. And I think that's a change throughout our whole entire community. If you ask me, I see the same thing in gay bars everywhere. But you think it's important that there be space. Obviously, you think it's important. Everyone involved with the Lesbian Bar Project thinks it's important that there be spaces that are identified as lesbian spaces. These lesbian bars. Hell yes. All are welcome, but they are primarily for, created by, run by, and cater to lesbians. Why is it important for those spaces to to continue to exist? Well, you know, Dan, sometimes you just want to be with your own. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there's nobody there's nobody that understands what it's like to be a butch dyke except another butch dyke. You can have some empathy for them, but you don't know what it is, you know, to spend every day of your life being called sir, even in the gynecologist office, you know? So it's <laughs> like you know, you just you you um you want to be with that person and also yeah, this is something that I've tried to explain to straight people that they that sometimes they don't get at all, especially sort of cis white straight men. When I walk into a dyke bar, I, it's like this weight is lifted off my shoulders. I know that I'm safe. The first time I walked into a gay bar, it felt like passing through an airlock. Like this pressure that I was under <laughs> was suddenly lifted. And I had lived with under that pressure for so long. I thought it was just normal and that I would always feel it. And I walked into a gay bar with my first boyfriend when I was like 17 years old. I shouldn't have been in there. And my first boyfriend was like 30. Uh-huh. I think I should have been in him. Uh-huh. But <laughs> we walked in there together and I was just like, oh, this is what it feels like to be in a space where this is just a baseline, that there is a common denominator of being gay and then you can focus on everything else that you are. And it really was uh-huh. like 
it was a pressure off me. And we all need spaces like that, particularly marginalized uh-huh. communities. We all need places where we're the majority. And, you know, if you're cis and white and straight, basically every flight you take, every restaurant you're in, everywhere you go, your neighborhood, most likely you are in the majority and you don't perceive what it's like to always be feel marginalized, to feel like you're in the minority and you're being observed or scrutinized or under threat wherever you go. And then exactly to be that person and to be able to walk into a dyke bar, to be able to walk into a lesbian bar, to be able to go to the lesbian bar on a, a night, you know, trans night, whatever, to feel like this uh-huh. space is for you and yours is so liberating. Absolutely. Uh, like you, I was 16 the first time I walked into a dyke bar. You only had to be 18 in the state of Illinois um, to buy, to, to go into a bar. You could only buy beer and wine. You couldn't buy, you know, hard liquor. Um, but at 16, I was able to get a fake ID that, that said I was 18. I'd heard that this lesbian bar existed. I took a bus from my town to this little town next door. And I will never forget as long as I live walking in and feeling exactly what you described, just walking in, looking around. And it was like, you know, take my hand. I'm a stranger in paradise. I was, I was so excited and happy and felt that weight lift off my shoulders. And then I'll get this totally happened to me, Dan, some big ass dyke at the, at the bar turned around and went, Hey, baby butch to me. (laughs) called me over, started talking to me. And, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of, kind of became my uncle that kind of said, this is what it's like to be a butch. This is, this is what we do, you know, and, uh, it, it, I'll, I'll never forget it. And I've always, and I used to sneak into that bar all the time, all the time. At the lesbian bar project, you've already raised a hundred thousand dollars to support these 21 Mm -hmm. bars. So that's a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. when you divide it up amongst the 21 bars. Now, Pride Month, an effort to raise another 200 grand. Terry and I are going to make a contribution. We're going to kick in. In addition to like raising the money to to support these spaces and keep them open, we really, you know, us old dykes, old bags, we have to encourage young queers to get out and patronize these Uh spaces, to, to go in and spend some of your money to keep them open. You know, they used to be the only places you could find each other, the only places you could get laid. Now you can find each other online on the apps. Now you can find each other. You know, our straight friends now will introduce us to each other. Our straight friends 30 years ago didn't know we were queer, usually. Mm-hmm. And so we've all these uh-huh. other ways to meet. So it seems to me that the other part of the Lesbian Bar Project is encouraging lesbians to patronize these 21 bars and maybe open some new ones. You hit that right on the head, darling. That's something that I talk about at length in terms of this project. Um, a lot of this is also a function of being the L in the LGBTQ. Um, our own compu- our own community doesn't support us that much, and that goes into our the younger generation of dykes. It, it's it's kind of an internalized homophobia. We are viewed that as less than. We don't receive a lot of the support. I find that other members of the alphabet do to receive. Especially if you happen to be a butch dyke. Our own community talks us down. And I hear young dykes saying, oh, I don't want to go to a lesbian bar. I want to go to a gay bar. I want to party with everyone. And it's like, you know, um, learn your history a little bit. Know a little bit about your own community. And those feelings that you're having are coming from a place of other people putting us down. Go to the dyke bar. Go to the dyke bar. Be with your own. Find your own community. You know, it's not like it used to be. They're every, 
every shape and size of fucking lesbian on the planet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There are preppy dykes. There are country dykes. There are BDSM dykes. There are dykes who don't want to be called dykes. (laughs) There are butch dykes. There are femme dykes. You know, there are dykes who are PE teachers. There are farming dykes or dykes who raise alpacas. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we don't just fit into this one box that everybody wants to put us in. And you know what box I'm talking about. Humorless, politically ardent, um, you know, and, and, and strident, right? right? That's the, that's the box. And, you know, anybody who spends five minutes with me knows that ain't, that's not true. And you know, that, that was never that my experience. That, that's totally not true. I've spent five <laughs> minutes with you a couple of times. Totally not true. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've spoken with my gay male friends who, you know, they're Wild Rose, the Wild Rose in Seattle, our lesbian mm-hmm. bar in Seattle, one of the bars that the project is hoping to support, one of the 21 yep. remaining lesbian bars uh, in yep. the United States. I used to go there for lunch all the time when my office was down the street. They used to serve food during mm-hmm. the day. Uh, and it was wonderful and welcoming for, for me as a gay man. And I would come in alone and sit at the bar and have a quesadilla or a burrito. They served Mexican food for a while. and my mm-hmm. And it was just – it felt good. Like I felt like I was helping to support the lesbian bar to help keep it open, like spending my money there for my lesbian friends who then would dance and party there uh, on you know Friday and Saturday night. And I never felt out of place, even as a gay, white, cis man. I never felt out of place in that bar. I felt like it was not mine to, but also for me, if that distinction makes sense. It makes total sense to me. In the old days, we were very, I, you know, Dan, we're, 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 we're the same generation. Even back in the 80s, there was such a, uh, the beginning of the 80s especially, there was such a rip in our community. You know, the dykes would only party at dyke bars, the fags would only party at fag bars, and nobody would let the other people in. That has completely changed. Mm-hmm. I do this almost every Sunday fun day. Um, I, there's a group that we get together, we have Sunday brunch, then we go to the Cubby Hole, which is my favorite dyke bar in the world, which is in New York City in the West Village. And then after we spend time in the Cubby Hole, we go down to Stonewall. We go over to Stonewall, we shoot pool, we dance, we do whatever. We're doing our best to spend our money to keep these places available and open to us because this is our community. And, and like you said, you know, I, Cubby Hole is probably the only lesbian bar in the, in the world that I haven't had sex in the bathroom. Because it's too... <laughs> Because it's too damn small, that little bar. You know what I mean? And you don't want to keep all those people waiting online. But it used to be these these places were places where it wasn't just your community and, and it wasn't just your your you know camaraderie. It was also a place to get laid. It was a, first and foremost to me a place to pick up girls. And um, again, I think it's better than hooking up online. I always feel this way. You should move on both fronts. You don't have to choose between hooking up online or hooking up uh, by going out, meeting people in bars. I think people should, I think people are well advised. I often advise people to move on both fronts, like get online, get the app online and get the fuck out of the house, move through space, meet people, meet space in real life. You may meet, you may run into somebody you saw on the app, but you also may meet somebody who's not on the app. Those people are out there too. Absolutely. And there's something to be said. And that's, I think, again, a part of this younger generation and the way the world has changed. You know, there's something to be said for human interaction. 
for actually, you know, looking someone in the eye and having a conversation with them, you know, and that can get that libido going even more, if you know what yeah. I mean. And if you want, and if you meet somebody on the app and you want to meet face to face before you uh, have them over to your apartment, you want a bar to go to, a place where Thank you. you can make the fuck out with somebody in the corner. And, you know, for, for, for young gays and lesbians, bi, trans people who are listening, some don't get how important bars were to the movement for LGBT equality. These were not uh -huh. just places where we met and drank and hooked up. There were places that we organized. Stonewall uh -huh. was the site of the, the riot uh -huh. that, that launched uh -huh. or kickstarted. Really. There was already a, a, a modern uh, gay rights movement, the Mattachine society, daughters uh -huh. of Of course, really threw uh -huh. it into overdrive Stonewall, a riot at a gay bar. The yeah. society was so oppressive. They didn't, it was illegal for a bar to serve a drink to somebody that they knew to be gay in the sixties and seventies in New York. Bars were a battleground and mm -hmm. they were a space that we had to fight for. And they were a space that we launched the fight from. And I don't want the mm -hmm. lesbian bars to disappear or the gay bars to disappear. Absolutely not. And, no, and I'll take that a step further. So as I've always said, I've been a professional lesbian since 1982. And before that, I freelanced. <laughs> but uh, in, in right. I've always said that when I case in point, the Wild Rose. How do I know the Wild Rose? Because I performed there. I performed there in the 1980s when I went on tour after, you know, being being becoming this giant comic in San Francisco in 1982, it wasn't like I was performing at the comedy club. None of the comedy clubs would have me. Mm. None of them. So what did I do? I performed at gay bars and at dyke bars. I toured all over the country, and those were the spaces that I was performing in because that's where our community was active. Do you think you would have the career that you have if these spaces hadn't existed at that point for you? Absolutely not. I, I, absolutely not. I wouldn't have had any, I wouldn't have anywhere to work. I would not have had anywhere. The, the visibility that you create that all queer people benefit from that kind of high profile butch dyke, we wouldn't have you in the public mm -hmm. eye if these spaces hadn't existed in the eighties. Absolutely not. I wouldn't have had Amelia's in San Francisco to perform at, or, you know, the wild rose. So it's crucial to, save the spaces that we still have, create enough demand uh -huh. by actually going out and leaving the house that perhaps some new spaces open so that uh -huh. Leah Delaria of the future has a place where they can go, they can perform, they can connect if they're being blocked out of comedy clubs or finding it hard to, to break in because they have that extra barrier of being a queer performer. And talking about it. You know, I'm I mean, that's that, that's the thing. And I'm finding that in the in the queer safe spaces that we have, because um, let's call it that. You know, I always say to people, what happened at Pulse was we lost our we lost our safety. But those are the places where we, we go and we feel safe. And then suddenly some man walks in with a gun and, and kills everybody. It wasn't just taking the lives of those people. It was taking the, the safe, safety that the entire queer community feels away from us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we, we need to keep these spaces open and we need to have these safe spaces to be able to explore our talent. And I'm finding 
that there's a resurgence of that going on. For example, Stonewall has a stage upstairs and uh, they have live performances there all the time of these young queer artists who are coming up and trying to do things, whether it be stand-up comedy or, you know, Little Nas kind of thing. I mean, they are up there doing it. And um, that, that I think, is also important. That not just, not just everything that you and I are talking about, but that place to really create community. And there's more to community than just, you know, as, as much as I hate to admit it, there's more to community than just hooking up in the bathroom. <laughs> Although that is a really good way to create community too. How many friend networks among gay men do we know that are all guys who've dated or slept with each other? Same thing with lesbians. I have never been to a lesbian <laughs> wedding where the 14 maids of honors weren't ex-girlfriends. We create community. Uh, yes, that's what we do, honey. And I always say that everybody in a dyke group is everybody's ex-lover everybody. And that's kind of beautiful. I'm always scolding straight people who call into my sex advice podcast and say things like, well, you know, my, I'm really mad at my girlfriend, you know, my best friend, because she's dating my ex-boyfriend's best friend. And like straight people have these rules about (laughs) that are like 12 degrees of separation. Like you can't date somebody that, you know, your friend can't date somebody you dated, even though they might be perfect for each other. Whereas in gay land and lesbian land, we sometimes gift exes to uh, formers we sleep with somebody like oh you're not right for me but boy my ex-boyfriend is perfect for you You guys are going to love each other how many of us have yented for our exes absolutely literally how i met the woman i'm dating right now dahlia because a friend of mine that was dating her and it wasn't really working out between them and she told this friend of mine that she was really attracted attracted to me so that that person reached out and said, you know, should I, do you want me to, you want, do you want her phone number? And I was, of course, show me a picture. I saw the picture and I went, yeah, I'd love her phone number. <laughs> okay. So straight people follow our lead. <laughs> it has to be like the bro code Please. and the girlfriend code has to go away. It's okay to date exes. It's okay for your exes to date your friends. And uh, you're welcome in the lesbian bars, but don't be assholes and don't overwhelm them. Uh, and yes, queers out there listening to me and Leah, young queers. Go, go to these spaces, go to the lesbian bar project, kick in a little money and look at that list of lesbian bars. And if there's one lesbian bar near you that's still open, go, go and get a fucking beer and maybe get fucking laid. There's always that. Leah Delaria, thank you so much. It's (laughs) always such a pleasure uh, to connect with you and and congratulations on, on all your success. Thank you. And back at you, my friend, I got to tell you, who'd have thunk all those years ago when we first met each other that this would be our lives right now? Can you imagine? Uh, Can you I, imagine? I, I can't. I can't. I remember being in that loft with you when I, when the, that night that we met when you were touring the queer bars and you were in Seattle probably to play the Wild Rose. Uh, and uh-huh. you were just such a force of nature. I knew you were going places. You had already been places, but oh. I knew you were going on to bigger and better things. Yeah, well, we we I think I felt that same way about you. You were so damn funny. That was the thing about I want to just want to say that to everyone. Dan is a funny motherfucker, and if you if y'all don't know it, get it now. The man's hilarious. Check out the Lesbian Bar Project at thelesbianbarproject.com. Kick in some money. Definitely, if you want to keep up with everything happening in queerdom, follow Leah Delaria on Twitter and Instagram at real. Leah Delaria. Thank you so much, Leah. It was such a pleasure. Dan, always great to talk to you, man. Love you. Hey, Dan. I'm a 
cis by guy in my 30s up in Canada calling with a question that's more of a curiosity than a problem. Uh, so I hurt my back two years ago. I had a disc bulge that was pushing on a nerve, giving me sciatic pain, uh, which was pretty bad. Uh, it started to get better, um, and then at some point it got a lot worse, and I actually had to go to the hospital and get some pain medication to take care of it. But ever since that weekend, uh, I've been totally pain-free. It hasn't been a problem. The only thing that I'm experiencing is I, I still have lingering numbness, just a little bit in my leg and foot, but mainly the place where I notice it is just my pinky toe. And I've talked to doctors, and this uh, doesn't seem to be a problem. And that hasn't really changed in the two years since this happened. But there's kind of two times when I actually do get feeling back. Uh, so the first is, on just a few occasions, when I've had a really, really good orgasm, I actually feel like a little burst in my toe. And then the second one is I notice it or feel it a lot more when I'm stoned. And when I get stoned, I often really like to just put something between my toe, uh, my pinky toe and uh, my fourth toe. And sometimes I'll do like a little string of beads and pull on it a little bit. And it feels really good. And honestly, it's kind of erotic. So at this point, I, I don't mind it at all. It's like if I can't feel my toe and I'm not sure when that sensation is going to come back, it seems like a little bonus. But I was just curious if you or your listeners had ever heard of something like this. Erotic energy around numbness, whether that's happened to anyone in similar conditions. Just really curious. I haven't heard of this specific sort of thing. Not that I'm surprised to hear about it. Nerves, neural pathways, they are mysterious things. All of our nerves are bundled together. They crisscross through narrow parts of our bodies. And sometimes a neural charge jumps the track. Sometimes the wires cross. Sometimes the streams cross. And we're left after we heal with a hard-to-explain what, what would you call it? A lingering after effect, a sensational concurrence, a brand new superpower like the one that you describe, caller. So long as you don't find the sensation unpleasant, and it doesn't sound like you do if you are actively trying to induce it at times. Cool. Great. It's a cool new superpower you've got. It's also a great story. I hope you enjoy it and continue to enjoy it. And if there's any listeners out there with similar stories that you'd like to share, go ahead. Give us a call. Share. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Cindy Wang Brandt tweets, When at fake Dan Savage said, instead of pray on it, masturbate on it, on this week's Savage Lovecast, all those who have deconstructed from toxic religious purity culture said, Amen. Anthony Garcia tweets, Regarding episode 765, it's fine for buys to use the terms top and bottom. Um, by erasure is a legit problem. I can assure you that quite a few of us, if not most, enjoy ass fucking and have been doing it as long as gay men have. Hashtag bisexuals exist. Okay, Anthony. So it's bisexual erasure for me to mention bisexuals in my response. Okay, sure, whatever. For the record, yes, bisexuals exist. That is indeed why I mentioned them. And by erasure is a problem and one I talk about on this show a lot. I was responding to a caller who had been told that only gay men can use top and bottom to describe the person fucking ass or the person getting their ass fucked, and that it was cultural appropriation for her as a straight woman to call herself a top. I told her, 
straight lady that she could use top and affirmed that bi people use top and bottom too. And that's fine. Not because bisexual people needed my gay ass permission to enjoy anal intercourse or use the terms top and bottom, but because those terms do not belong to gay men alone. And that was my point. That was the caller's question. That was her idiot friend's assertion. Beth Beverly tweets, I was today years old when I learned the term French active and French passive in regards to BJ's. Thank you, at fake Dan Savage. Beats saying suck and D, and I want to incorporate it into my vocabulary, but seeing as the call was about appropriation and I'm a cis-het lady, I'll keep it in my head. Well, as a cis-het lady, you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, at least according to the Seattle Times. But regardless, you should feel free to use French active whenever you like. Yes, the question I was responding to is about appropriation, but my answer was no, it's not cultural appropriation for straight people to use top and bottom. So Beth, you can feel free to call yourself French active if that sounds better, that rolls around your mouth better than suck and D. The gays, we're not really using that expression anymore anyway. And like I said last week, we stole husband and wife from the straights and the buys and the buys and opposite sex marriages, of course, them too. And the least we can do, the least the gays can do is let you have top and bottom and French active and French passive and Greek active and Greek passive enjoy. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, I'm calling you in response to episode 765 regarding is Holly a sexual orientation or not? No, I think you should say that it's not because sexual orientations determine who you're attracted to. The fact that you can be attracted to someone when you're poly without knowing if they're poly or not, I just don't see how that's a sexual orientation. It's a strategy, and it could become more of an accepted relationship strategy or structure, but if monogamy is not an orientation, I don't see how poly is. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller who wanted to go to her stepbrother's wedding, but her evil stepfather was going to be there. There's another choice, I think, which is you take a buddy to the wedding. The caller didn't mention a partner, but I've found at weddings where I want to avoid certain people, taking someone with me who knows the situation ahead of time, who's going to stay sober and who can literally be a wall for me if there are people that I don't want to talk to at that wedding can be a potential solution to be able to help her relax because there's someone else watching her back, making sure that her stepfather or her mother, if that's the case, can't get anywhere near her. Call her good luck, and I hope you get to go to your stepbrother's wedding. I'm calling to leave a comment for the girl who can only orgasm with her knees locked and her legs straight. I am also one of these people. I think you just have to do with, you know, really clenching your muscles up and getting everything nice and tight. Just wanted to suggest you can also be on top. It may be a little bit awkward in the beginning, but you just keep your legs really straight. Like basically if a guy is like lying down or whatever, I'm a lesbian, so, you know, whatever. But let's say he's lying down and you're, you're like basically straight, like on top of his legs, but they're still locked. They're still straight. And you can sort of use your feet to like, pump back and forth and that's the way generally that I orgasm today and it's really awesome. I don't think it's a weakness, it's a strength. 
And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064 and leave a message. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Don't forget, Thursday, July 1st, noon Pacific time, we're hosting another sack lunch exclusively for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. This time we're going to open the floor and have folks out there help me answer questions from the mailbag. If you're a Magnum subscriber, you don't need to do anything. We will send you a link at 10 a.m. Pacific time before the noon show. If you're not already a Magnum subscriber, head to savagelovecast.com and become one today for all access, ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and an invitation to these monthly get-togethers with me, savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Leah Delaria on Twitter and Instagram at RealLeahDelaria. And please, if you can afford it, kick in a few bucks, go to LesbianBarProject.com and join me in making a donation to save these spaces. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for telling